Well, good morning, everybody. What uh, powerful words of uh, affirmation and uh, worship we've had this morning in those songs. And uh, I didn't actually coordinate with the worship guys uh, at all before this Sunday. And suddenly the words we've sung are really the words that come to Daniel chapter 3. And I'm thinking, my goodness, if you knew the story and you sang those words, we could go home. It'd be great. Um, it's lovely to be with you again. My name's David Timms. I'm from uh, William Jessup University via, well, Australia. If you picked up your Australian hearing aids as you came through the door this morning, um, hopefully you won't miss too much this morning. But um, great to be with you. Hey, how many of you? How many of you are parents this morning? You know, one or more. Ki- oh, a whole bunch of us. Yeah, my parents several times over as well. Let me ask you: when you, when it came to that um, that difficult task of assigning names, remember that? <laughs> you know, the conversations you you had. You know, I want to call him or her this or that, and. Then your wife says, well, actually, I've got a whole different idea. And you say, oh, well, no, if it's a girl and you call her that, gosh, I had a girlfriend by that name. That'll never work, you know. And it's like, and you have these awkward conversations. Some of you probably scoured through uh, baby books, baby name books. How many of you named a child after reading through a book and going, oh, that is a really nice sounding name. I've never heard it before, but I like that one. Anyone done that? Uh, one honest person. Um, <laughs> My first child, my first son was a bit that way. How many of you named a child after a family member? Slipped a name in, a grandpa, grandma, maybe your own name. <laughs> I did that, again, with my first child. I made all these things with my first child, right? Okay, I like the name, I like the sound. Let me give him my second name. How many of you named a child after an event, something, something that happened in your life, and the meaning of the name was particularly important to you? Anyone name a child for that. A couple of us. Okay, my third son, that way. 20 years ago, Kim had cancer. Lost a child in that process. And uh, we were told never to have children again. Not that she couldn't have children, but that we shouldn't have children. And with all due diligence, I'm standing here to say, uh, five years later, our third son arrived. And we named him Joel Samuel Timms. The Timms is an easy part, right? It's my last name. The Joel Samuel. Joel because the Lord is God. Samuel because it means the Lord hears. Particularly thinking of the story of Hannah when she couldn't bear children. And I thought of the tears that we had shed at the thought of not being able to have more children. And Kim said, he's got to be named Samuel. Because the Lord has heard our cry. Joel Samuel, he's, he's my youngest. He's 15 now. I'd be embarrassed if I said my youngest, right? <laughs> he's, a, he's a sophomore in high school, he would tell us. Um, names are important. And in fact, uh, our names make a difference to how we live. I have a friend in Las Vegas uh, who, um, when he was born, his, his, his parents named him Jody. And for 50 years, he had to keep telling, I know I've got a girl's name, I'm sorry. (laughs) And for 50 years, he looked at the world through a certain lens and looked at himself a certain way. And just a few years ago, he changed his name officially to Joe. And it changed his life. Why he didn't do it 30 years ago, he wonders too. But our names impact the way that we live quite significantly. About 630 years ago, three Jewish mothers were all pregnant. 
they gave birth to little baby boys, and uh, it, was a, it was a grim time in the life of Israel. You've been hearing a little bit about that in the, the last few weeks. Tough days, tough, tough days. Foreign armies coming in and invading, uh, hardship, persecution, hunger, death, violence. And, and mother number one says, I'm going to name my child Hananiah, which simply means God is gracious. Seriously? <laughs> In the midst of all of this, she wants a daily reminder that God is gracious. The second mom says, well, here's my baby boy. I'm going to name him Mishael, which simply means uh, who is like God. Well, right then, there are a lot of people in Israel saying, I can think of a lot of things as good and even better than God because he's not looking after us too well. (laughs) Who is like God? And the last mom gives birth to her baby son, and she says, let's call him Azariah which means God has helped. (laughs) Really? He's helped? In what way has he helped? God is gracious. Who is like God? God has helped. Oh, these were wishful thinking names at best. They were great names. And I'm sure that those three young lads, as they grew up, grew up with a view of the world and a view of themselves that strongly affirmed God's reality, God's presence, and God's grace despite the turmoil and the tough times that they were facing. And as you know, the famed and feared Nebuchadnezzar had marched on Israel. This king of Babylon had come from the north and the east and now had had captured this land and taken it from them. And it was tough times at the very least. And Nebuchadnezzar and his armies had this habit of going into a place, and what they would do is they would uh, kill all the young warriors, of course. (laughs) The last thing we want is anyone who's going to rise up against you. Kill the young warriors, but the other young men, and certainly as many of the young women as you could, you hauled off into slavery. You you exiled them. You dislocated them from their their home. And the only people you really left in the land were a handful of folk who were uh, old, who were weak, who were frail, who could maybe do some farming but pose no threat to you at all. And there was one other thing that you had to do. Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, uh, I want you to go out and I I want you to find a few of the the finest and the best. I want you to get the best looking, best educated young fellas because I want them to be retrained and they're going to serve in my court. Oh, and let's change their names. Change their names. And these three young Hebrew lads receive the names by which we know them much better. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah become Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The scripture says Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. This is back in chapter 1. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel is Belteshazzar, Hananiah is called Shadrach, Mishael is called Meshach, Azariah is called Abednego. Or as Veggie Tales likes to call them, Rack, Shack, and Benny. And I think that's kind of a, a simple way of remembering their names, isn't it? Rack, Shack, and Benny. Hey, we should not underestimate. We should not underestimate what happens to us when we undergo a name change. And it happens to most of us at some point in our lives. And probably the first thing I would want to say this morning, and maybe I'm going to camp here for a few minutes because it seems the most important thing I can share with you this morning is that we fail or fall when we embrace the wrong name. 
Changing a name is no small issue in the Bible. In fact, in the Old Testament, name changes happen quite a bit, but there's usually a reason for it, a very significant reason. When you, when you change a name, you make a statement, and if you change someone else's name, or if you give them the name, you have authority over them. It's one of the reasons why children are to, to respect their parents, because guess who gave those kids their names, <laughs> right? Mum and Dad. And the one who gives you the name has authority over you. That's why uh, in the Garden of Eden, God didn't say, oh, by the way, Adam, uh, this, is a, this is a tiger. You've never seen one of these. I call it a tiger, and that's what you should call it too. That's why God didn't say, and this is an elephant, and this is an ant. God said, you know, Adam, I'm going to give you the privilege of naming the animals. Why? Because when he names them, he has authority over them. It's one of the interesting twists in the story in the Garden of Eden. In chapter 3, after the fall, Adam and Eve have uh, rebelled against God. And God says, you know, what's happened here? What's going on? And Adam, you know, it comes clean. He says, well, you know, it's the woman you gave me. You know, it wasn't me. Now, Adam knows full well that the penalty for this sin is death. So what's he essentially doing for this woman? God, kill her. Don't kill me. It's not my fault. It's her fault. Uh, Eve is interestingly fairly silent in this whole dialogue and as the scripture tells a story God pronounces the curses against the serpent against the woman against the man and as as soon as God has finished speaking you know what happens Adam named the woman Eve think about that the only thing he's named up until now what the animals (laughs) And before she has a chance to exert any authority over him, he slips in there and exerts authority over her. He changes her name. I've just been man and woman until now. Isha and Isha. And he says, I'm going to give you a name. Just like I gave that critter over there a name. Yeah, when you change a name, something very significant happens. When Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem, the king in Jerusalem, his name was Jehoiakim. What you don't know from Daniel, but we do know from other parts in the Old Testament, is that poor old Jehoiakim used to be called Eliakim. (laughs) Problem is that under his little reign, and it was a short and fairly brief reign, Pharaoh from Egypt had come up and he'd conquered Israel earlier. And Pharaoh had said, you know, I've got no interest in uh, putting my own man in office. You'll be a good, good servant to me. So you have been known as Eliakim. I call you Jehoiakim. Both names essentially mean God establishes. But that way, every time someone used the name Jehoiakim, what what are they thinking in the back of their mind? Pharaoh's in charge. Pharaoh's in charge. It's kind of like every time I say Joel Samuel, I'm reminded God is gracious. God heard. So he went from Eliakim to Jehoiakim, and poor old Pharaoh conquers him, and now Nebuchadnezzar conquers him as well. It's a pretty tough little reign. Jesus says to Simon, you'll no longer be Simon, I'm going to call you Peter. Not this wavering reed, you're going to be this rock. And there's a little bit of something going on in that. Because if you understand Jewish culture, as I'm trying to express right now, you would know that Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm taking responsibility for your life. One of the reasons why later on in John chapter 21, after Peter has denied Jesus, Jesus maybe goes back and calls him Simon. 
because he's not sure that he has that place of authority that Peter was willing to give anymore. Paul was Saul. I don't know when he changed names, but the name change is not just because, hey, I, you know, Saul it's got, doesn't have the same to it as Paul. <laughs> no, he changes his name because it's a way of expressing, I come under a different lordship from this point in my life on. You change the name, you change lordship, and we ought to be really aware of that. Nebuchadnezzar said, change their names, and the three young Jewish men are given names that actually spoke of Babylonian gods. It was an attempt not just to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. Here's the point. And if if nothing else this morning, just capture this little thing here. Nebuchadnezzar was making an effort to make these young men forget who they were. You're not Hananiah, you're not Mishael, you're not Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I give you new names, I want you to forget your past, I want you to forget who you are. Can I pause there for a moment? Because many of us are living with a change of name too. Many of us have new labels that dominate our thoughts that make us forget who we really are as well. Sometimes those labels and names come from other people. Sometimes they just come from ourselves. Sometimes you and I are living with names and labels that nobody knows we live with because we've taken them on. You know some of those names and labels. Uh, Stupid. I'm stupid. I can't get anything right. I always make mistakes. I'm not clever. I'm not smart. I'm stupid. And I see the world and I see myself through that lens. And I know my folks gave me a name. They called me Michelle or they called me Joe or Jim or whatever your, your given name might be. But the name I give myself is stupid. And I live with that name every day. I look in the mirror in the morning and I say, stupid, good morning, stupid. Sometimes that label is something like uh, ugly, fat, unbearable, unwanted. And every time I look in the mirror or take a shower, I just say, oh, I am just ugly and undesirable, and I see the world and I see myself through that lens, and I am preoccupied with that name and that label. Lots of labels that we come up with. Some of us live with a label unemployed. Whatever that holds in it for us, we live with that and we look through the world and and look at ourselves through that lens. Some of us uh, have been living with a, a label divorced, And it rises above every other name and every other label in our lives. And we just can't get over or get past that label and what it means to us. Some of us, uh, the the label is a felon. Some of us, the label might be addict. How about this one? Some of us are living with the label gay. I had a woman come to my office a couple of weeks ago. Spoke at another church. She came to visit I wanted to talk about her son who just recently came out of the closet and has gotten engaged to his boyfriend. And she's trying to process all of this. And what was interesting to me as she shared about her son was that this name, this label, gay, 
has become the primary dominant way that he thinks of himself and expresses himself in the world. That's crazy, isn't it? That's like me saying the primary label I should carry around is greedy. Or the primary label you should carry around is lust or something else. That's not our primary label. Scripture says that these are not the labels and names that define us. In fact, Henry Nouwen used to say, you are not what you have. Because some of us want to define ourselves by what we own and what we've collected and gathered. He says, you are not what you have done. Because many of us define ourselves by by our activities, our accomplishments. He says, and you are not what others say about you. That's very important. You are not the name or the label that the folk around you, whether they be family or friends, neighbours or colleagues, you are not what they say about you. He says, you are, hear this, you are the beloved child of God. And every one of us here this morning is extended that as our primary name and label. And I want to say to you this morning that we haven't done the story in chapter 3 yet. (laughs) That's all right. It's It's a familiar story and the story will come quickly in just a moment. But when Hananiah, Zariah, Rakshak and Benny, when they are confronted by King Nebuchadnezzar and threatened that they'll be tossed into the fiery furnace if they don't bow down before this image that he has created, this 90 foot monstrosity, The thing that really holds them in shape, the thing that really gives them confidence is that they have not forgotten who they are. They are the children of the living God. And that name and that label continues and extends to each of us even today. So Daniel chapter 3. Very briefly, in the few minutes that we have remaining, tells us that Nebuchadnezzar builds this 90-foot statue. I don't know if it's a statue of him or of something else. It really doesn't matter. He was just all puffed up about it. He decides to call all the people together, the governors, the rulers, princes, uh, the magistrates, the judges, all of the important people, calls them all out into this place that is in the middle of modern-day Iraq, of course. And uh, he says to them, uh, when the music begins to play, you're all going to bow down, you're all going to worship me. And he just thought this was great. And he said, and by the way, any of you who don't, you know, I'm going to tear you limb from limb, I'm going to destroy your homes and turn them into rubble. This is likely one of his favorite sayings in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is a violent guy. His solution for everything is tear you limb from limb and turn your homes into rubble. Uh, this is a simple solution. And so the lutes and the lyres and the flutes and the bagpipes. My Bible says bagpipes, seriously? Well, I guess you do. And when the music started to play, everybody, you know, bowed down and worshipped or at least bowed before this statue, except our three young heroes, of course. And some good folk in fine form, feeling it was their civic duty, they went off and informed the king. Oh, king, you know, there are three who have not the knee to you. Remember what you said? I just thought you'd want to know. You know, there's, there's some rebels in the camp. And the king loses his temper. He does not like to be defied. He's enraged. In verse 13, we read about this. And he calls these three young fellows together, 
uh, and, and says to them, hey, what is going on here? In fact, the scripture says in verse 19 of chapter 3 that his face changed toward them. You ever seen somebody in such a rage that you just went, oh my goodness, what, what happened to you? The face changes and they lose all control And yet these are three of the finest and the best. They've been through the University of Babylon for three years. They've been retrained, he thought. And so he decides to give them a second chance. Hey, bow down even now, you know, and you guys will be spared this this fate. But in fact, in Daniel chapter 3 is this fascinating story of these three guys saying, look, you can... You can, you can threaten us all you like. You can put the furnace right in front of us if you want. We won't bow down and worship that 90-foot high thing that you have built. And I want to say that, secondly, they stood with confidence because they knew who and whose they were, and that's true for us as well. Look at their classic and their courageous response. It's what was read for us a little earlier by Ron. He says, if we are thrown into the burning furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, how about that? They're ready to actually face death. We can't be sure because we're not the ones that tell him what to do. Oh, that's an interesting idea. What a novel idea that is, that we don't tell God what to do even when we're facing the fire, even if he doesn't deliver us, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. It's a profoundly brave moment. They show incredible courage in standing up to the king. Death is not going to deter them. They cannot be intimidated. And the key is simply this. They knew who and whose they are. It's that simple. It's not rocket science. Some of us may have been tempted to compromise. I know I would have been. Uh, In my mind, I would have had a whole bunch of things come quickly to mind. I would have said in in my mind, well, you can make me do it, but you can't make me want to do it. (laughs) So sure, you know, I'll bow down, but my heart's not there. You know, are you happy now? (laughs) I don't think you would have been happy, right? I would have said, and, and that's, not a, that's not an offense to God, because God knows my heart. He knows that my heart's not really... No, no, no. I said, well, I'll just do it once. Okay, God. Okay? God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Right? I'll just do it once, and then I'll ask for forgiveness, and I'll be good to, to move ahead. Or I might have said uh, to myself, this is, of course, well, everyone else is doing it. Hey, some of these other people, they're, they're Jewish too. Um, it must be okay since there's only three of us and the majority can't possibly be wrong, can they? If everyone's doing it, then it must be right. Maybe I have missed something. Maybe I've misunderstood something. Or maybe I'd have said to myself, it's only an image, it's not real. And God knows that. Or maybe I'd have said, if I get killed, how can I help anyone else? Right? I'm in this for the long haul, for the people of Israel, the people of God, and God himself. It doesn't help anybody if I get killed. (laughs) I could have found all sorts of ways to rationalize, ultimately, and compromise. But a life of compromise is a life without integrity. And when you sacrifice integrity, what's left? I can understand the peer pressure, I can understand the political pressure, but when we forget who we are the beloved children of God, 
and whose we are, Christ's, we inevitably conform to the world around us. Only when we know who we are and whose we are can we stand in the face of the toughest trials. Hey, if I could prescribe a pill for everybody here this morning. I wish I was a chemist, spiritual chemist of sorts. I'd have uh, mixed together a whole bunch of pills this morning and these pills. It would simply be a pill that helped you live in the confidence that you are the beloved child of God. You belong to him and he cares about you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had no time for all of this bravado, this, uh, this courage. So he ordered the fire to be stoked up seven times hotter than usual. And then he ordered some of his elite guard to come in, bind these young fellas and toss them in. I'm done with it. I can find more servants somewhere. And so his elite guard come in, they bind the boys. And as they go to the entrance of the furnace, the scripture tells us that they themselves, that is the warriors, they perished at the heat that simply burst out of the furnace toward them when they opened the door. That's pretty hot. But I've been shocked. I went past a bushfire in Australia one time. It was on the side of the road. And I was shocked. I thought, I'm in the car. It'll be, it'll be fine. It'll be easy. Those of you who have done the same thing, you know what I'm about to say. Shocked to be driving in the road. And the heat that comes straight through the glass and in, into the car like that in an instant. I was shocked at the heat that came from a fire that was still 20 feet away, though burning fairly fiercely. Yeah, I can understand this. And these guys perish and the three lads go in and they do not perish. It's extraordinary. And then the miracle happened. And I would say by way of a heading simply that we stand with confidence because the fourth man always stands with us. The king looks into the furnace and he says to his officials, Hey, how many fellows did we toss in there? <laughs> I don't even know how he looks into the furnace, right? It doesn't matter. Maybe it's cooling down. I wouldn't be going, how many did we toss in there? I'm going, didn't we toss people in there because they're walking around? His officials say, well, we tossed in three. He says, then he says, look, I see four men loose and walking around in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. We stand with confidence because the fourth man stands with us. Johnny Cash wrote a song years ago, The Fourth Man in the Fire. It included the line, they wouldn't bend, they wouldn't bow, they wouldn't burn <laughs> because of the fourth man in the fire. And the story takes this dramatic turn. But I want to just make this brief comment about it. Nebuchadnezzar only saw in that moment what those young men had been assured of for a long time. It was amazing to him. I don't think it was amazing to them. When he saw the fourth man, he's shocked. When they saw the fourth man, they were not. I want to say to you this morning, the fourth man stands with us. One of the things that we struggle with so often in our Christian journey is to practice the presence of Christ. God is always alongside us. His angels surround us. His Holy Spirit dwells us. Christ never leaves us or forsakes us. In fact, the closing words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel are simply these, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hey, nothing makes fire more difficult to endure than walking through it alone. 
You know that. I know that. When you're facing trial, when you're facing hardship, facing it by yourself is what makes it most difficult. I want to say to you this morning, very simply from this this brief, brief story in Daniel chapter 3, don't embrace the wrong name. Rather, embrace the name that matters most to the Father. You are his beloved son. You are his beloved daughter. Know who and whose you are. And practice the presence of Christ. You and I walk from this place in a couple of minutes. And some of you will feel like you're walking straight back into the fire. I know that. Things aren't good at home. Things aren't good at work when you get there tomorrow. There's strains in relationships between parents and kids. There are tough times. This afternoon does not look like a happy time already. And you know when you walk through that door, you are in a sense walking back into the fire. You are the beloved child of God. And the fourth man goes with you. Embrace that. Hold on to that. Look to him in the fire. Let's pray together. Father, we take this moment to bow before you and acknowledge that you are Lord and King. You are sovereign. And Father, also to bring to you our circumstances, the stuff that we are going through in our lives. Some of it is just painfully hard. There is sorrow and there is grief. There is fear and there is anxiety. There is hurt and pain. And Father, you know you know exactly what each one of us Give us the kind of memory that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had. A memory of their roots, a memory of what matters most. The memory that we are your sons and daughters. And Father, guide us to walk more closely with you. And this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.